Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is a show that champions entrepreneurs, startups, early-stage businesses, in fact, all small businesses, and it's heard right around the world. Now, we're in the second year of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, and we'll continue to interview the top movers and shakers in the business world, the authors who are the most relevant to you and who are topping the best-selling charts, as well as interesting celebrities, sports people, anybody that can be of help to a small business. We're very pleased that you could join us this Thanksgiving week, and we hope that we can continue to entertain you and provide you with the best possible business advice on an ongoing basis. Now, this is my favourite week of the year, and uh, we were just talking uh, before we started about the fact that the average Thanksgiving dinner I saw on CNN today was four and a half thousand calories. <laughs> God. Anyway, I love it. It's fantastic. And this is the time when we give thanks for all the blessings that we all have. So if your business life's been good to you and you've enjoyed success, I ask you to embrace entrepreneurship and do whatever you can to mentor, to mentor and help fund new businesses. Last week, you'll probably remember I interviewed Jeff Hazlett. He's the marketing guru that tried to convince Eastman Kodak that they were no longer in the film business and that unless they evolved with the times, they would fail. Of course, that's exactly what happened. The industry went digital and instead of being ahead of the curve, which they should have been, Eastman Kodak found themselves out of business. I often emphasize on this show, I talk about it a lot, how important it is to ensure that it doesn't matter what business you're in, you have to continually watch how, watch how customers' cha- uh, tastes and, and attitudes change. How, you know, sometimes there's legislative decisions that can change your business environment. And you also need to really carefully watch what your competition's doing. This week, a big week for announcements, and one of them was that Hostess Brands, the makers of Wonder Bread, Twinkies, Ding Dongs, and Ho Ho's, all those wonderful things that fill the back aisle of supermarkets as an impulse buy, they filed for bankruptcy. Now, most of the media reports that I've seen are blaming the fight between the company and one of its largest unions, and there's 18,000 people involved. But the major reason that Hostess has gone into bankruptcy is they haven't evolved with the times. Its biggest brand is Wonder Bread which is white crap. Twinkies, ding-dongs, and ho-hos are just sugar designed as snacks. 
Now, at a time when Americans are falling over from diabetes, you know, every five seconds of every day, and all of the major fast food chains are cutting their sugar and sodium content, sugary sodas are getting banned from schools. Is it really surprising that a company that is saturating their products with processed flour and sugar simply cannot compete? Now, gone are the days when Americans had bread with every meal. Only 7% of Americans now have bread with a meal. Toast for breakfast has been replaced in 40% of American households by yogurt, which is a hell of a lot healthier than white bread, particularly processed white bread. And when Americans do buy bread, most supermarkets today lure you with the beautiful smell of their own freshly baked bread. Now, there's been a massive increase in the number of health-conscious Americans, particularly with all the emphasis that there's been on the high level of obesity. Now, with all these things in play, one would have thought that Hostess would have modified its highly caloric, sugary products. So why have they gone into bankruptcy? Because since the 1930s, they haven't changed the products they offer. It's nearly 80 years. Everything's evolved enormously. The real reason is not the unions. The real reason is the fact that they are absolutely out of touch with everybody except the uneducated, obese consumer. And if the courts do allow hostess to continue, which looks like happening, unless they dramatically change their product offering, they're only doing what the federal government does. Kick the can down the road. They're postponing the inevitable. So that's hostess. Now, this radio show is all about entrepreneurs, and I was surprised during the week to find out that the fastest growing segment of the labour market in the United States, are people over 55. Now, award-winning journalist Kerry Hannan has written a great book called The AARP's Great Jobs for Everyone 50 Plus. Now, the most surprising thing that Hannan discovered was senior entrepreneurship. She was amazed by the number of people over 50 who've either started or are planning to start their own business. I must admit, I was surprised, excuse me, as well. It's a lot. And it, it wasn't the area from which I thought a great number of um, entrepreneurs would come. But it's happening because more and more workers are staying on the job longer. They're trying to get into, back into the workforce because, some of them, because of financial necessity. And it's difficult to find a job or because they're looking for some meaning in their old age. So at a time when we read so much about successful young entrepreneurs, people over 55, like myself, often face ageism or other stereotypes about we older workers. And as regular listeners know, this program's all about entrepreneurs, and I've got to admit that I'm also guilty of, fa of focusing on the younger entrepreneur. 
So I am absolutely thrilled to know that there's this explosion of old fart entrepreneurs. I reckon that is fantastic. Now, despite the multitude of reasons that contribute to the boom in older entrepreneurs, Hannon discovered that a major driver is their desire not only to be their own boss, but they're also looking for legacy businesses where they can work side by side with their kids who are probably in their 20s or 30s. So that's a great combination of youth and enthusiasm and enthusiasm and expertise. So the tech-savvy, nimble youth is blending with the extensive knowledge learned from decades of being in the workforce and getting the hell belted out of you. The overriding trend that jumped out at Hannon is how many over 55s don't ever see themselves retiring in the way our parents did. Hannon found that it's, it's not the fear of running out of money that's lighting their fire. They're enthusiastic about working. They love working. They don't view themselves as older workers and they believe they've got something to contribute and want to feel valued and relevant. I think there's also a view out there that when it comes to technology, we oldies are dinosaurs and we simply don't understand or don't want to work with the millennials. Now, that simply isn't true. I have a um, a 21-year-old son who I'll be seeing immediately after this program who goes to college in Washington, D.C. And I would love to be in a business where I could work with him. That would be fantastic um, because his new knowledge blends very well with my knowledge. So Hannon also found out that the younger generation is much better at self-promotion than we baby boomers. But baby boomers, we need to realise that experience alone doesn't get you a job. Skills do. So irrespective of whether you're a millennial or a baby boomer, you need to convince employers that you are someone who can solve their problem right now. No hand-holding, no investment needed in training me. In other words, talk about what you can do more than what you've done or where you've been because that really doesn't matter. What does matter is what you can do now and in the future. So if you're a 55-year-old plus entrepreneur or if you're out looking for a good job, go for it. The world's your oyster. The only thing that can stop you doing almost anything you want is you. Now, while we're on the subject of 50-year-old entrepreneurs, there are approximately 13,000 small businesses in America where the primary owner is 50 years old or older and is looking for some form of exit strategy. You've done all the hard work and you want to cash out. Now, to do that does require an exit strategy. And an exit strategy, thats it's the planning and the steps that you need to take to enable you to exit from a business. This means selling off your share of the business or the entire company if you own it, 
to obtain a good return on all the blood, sweat and the tears that you've poured into it. So how does an entrepreneur go about making a lucrative exit? There are really only three questions. The first option is to have somebody buy you out. So if you have partners, then you should approach them first. They need to pay a realistic price for you, but talk to them first. You know, it's probably one of the most straightforward ways of leaving a company. If you've worked together to build the company, then you probably share the vision, the work ethic and the management style. You understand what everybody's been through and you probably have a pretty strong relationship. So go out, get an independent valuation of the company, decide on a final price and negotiate legal agreements. Another option is to put your business up for sale. If you created a successful business, you might have spoken to some people in the past who were interested in buying you out or investing in you. So you can also discuss the possibility with a rival or a related business, you know, somebody that might be looking to expand. Again, you need to get an independent valuation and some legal advice. You need to pay very close attention to how the deal's structured and what the tax implications are. You don't want to be on the hook later for an onerous financial obligation once the deal is done. That's the sort of shock or surprise you simply don't need. The third option is an initial public offering. It's called an IPO. Now, we've done a number of IPOs for companies, and in my view, it's the most effective way to cash out of a business. Contrary to to common opinion, creating an IPO does not have to be an expensive exercise. If you have a few years' business under your belt, and you'd be making profits, then it can be relatively simple, but an excellent option to put some money in your pocket. Even startups and early stage businesses under certain circumstances can undertake a successful IPO. There are people who fund your IPO for a realistic return on their investment, and it's a great way to go. So if your startup or your early stage business is performing excellently, and has the makings of a big sustainable company in the future, an IPO can provide the founders a big payday. You've got to remember, though, that usually CEOs and founders don't sell out their stock right after the IPO because investors take a dim view of that and you'll sell down the stock. But you can sell a little bit of it at the start and then sell additional stock over a period of time. It's a great way to go. It's a terrific way to be rewarded for all the work you've put into a company. And doing it this way, you can still control the company or at least to a level of control that you want to select. And don't forget, this company, this program is all about you, the entrepreneur or the small business person that's listening to this show and looking for tips on how to be more successful. Well, that's what we're here for. This whole show is dedicated to assisting entrepreneurs. So if you have a topic that you would like us to discuss or an email with a specific question you'd like answered, please don't hesitate to send it to me, 
bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer it on air or email you directly. I'm Bob Pritchard and after the break I'll talk with my guest, Jim Cathcart, a long-time friend of mine and a highly successful businessman and speaker. Lives just up the road. We're going to catch up for lunch in the next couple of weeks and I'll be back in just a minute. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Business Radio Show. Now, this is where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's extraordinary people, people that have really achieved great things. And uh, I think one of the things that's interesting is that most of the extraordinary achievers that um, I've ever met began life in pretty ordinary circumstances, just like the most of us. But there's something about them that makes them interesting, unusual, and they turn out to be great. Now, this is the segment where we try to find out what that little key ingredient is. Now, I've known my first guest today for, I don't know, probably 20 years. Um, he's the author of 16 books. He's a business leader, and he's one of the most honoured business speakers in the world. In the speaking industry, he is a legend. He's won every award there is. And uh, Jim Cathcart, I'm proud to say, is a friend of mine. And his book, The Acorn Principle, when it came out, was the second best-selling e-book in America, second only to Stephen King. And we all know how many books Stephen King sells, so that's a hell of an effort. Jim popularised the term relationship selling. He is a legend and it's great to have him on the show. Now, Jim and I worked together on a cruise ship. We were both giving speeches on the same bill on a cruise ship one hell of a long time ago. And uh, <laughs> we spoke to a group of business leaders. And from what I recall, it was a pretty rocky trip. And the, um, the weather was pretty brutal. 
Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Bulletproof hey, Chat Radio Bob. Show. I tell you, I still have a little bit of nausea when I think about that trip because, man, that, that ship was going stem to stern almost straight up in the air. Yeah, it was pretty scary, wasn't it? It was pretty, yeah, hard, it was. pretty hard to speak as your microphone sort of slid across the stage. <laughs> uh, it's nice to be with you on the air. Thank you for, for the interview. I'm looking forward to this. It's good to speak to you. Um, Jim, you pioneered the concept of relationship selling, and you wrote the first book about it, and it was an international mm-hmm. bestseller. Now, when you go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon, there are millions of books about relationship selling. Yeah. Why is your book different? Why was it such a huge success? Well, I think it's because I, I was the first to introduce that way of thinking about sales. Mm. You know, a lot of people, or at least the, the first to articulate it that way, uh, lots of people had, had figured out long ago that relationships are either assets or liabilities. Yeah. And so if, if you approach your business with a relationship as a potential asset, and you put in place systems and measures to track the development of your contacts into connections, into business friendships, into ongoing client relationships and customer loyalty, you can build a pretty substantial business. But if you don't, it's going to be harder because every year is going to be as hard as the year before it because you're not building on a base of intentionally established and and professionally developed relationships. So when I introduced that concept, I came into the marketplace with the title, brand new title, Relationship Selling, and people were saying, wait a minute, relationships are, you know, husband, wife, man, woman things, and selling is business, so you you can't mix the two. I said, no, I think we definitely need to mix those two concepts and forget about the gender factor and, and, and focus on the one person bringing value to another person. So that's what did it. We, we hear and we have heard for as long as I can ever remember how critical service is and how yeah. critical these relationships, building relationships are. And yet 99% of companies are really bloody bad at it. Why is that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> intentions are easy and cheap. Actions are the things that bring about the results, and therefore they cost more to to, to pull off. I think, but um, I don't think people have taken time to define what is a relationship. Yeah, you know, a relationship. I've asked hundreds of audiences, "What is a relationship?" and they all look at me like I'm an idiot. Yeah, and I said, "No, I'm serious. I want to know the answer. We all know the word, so what's the definition?" And invariably, they start guessing. In other words, there's no consensus as to what a relationship's definition is. So I came up with one. Right. A relationship's a direct connection between people, keyword direct yep. connection between people, in which value is exchanged. So that, that means coming back to your question about service. If you want to enhance a relationship, exchange more value. How do you, how do you exchange more value? Give more. How do you determine what to give? Ask them. Yeah. See, most businesses think, well, I'm providing plenty of value. Say, well, how do you know? Well, because this is valuable. And Excuse me. Did the customer tell you that? Well, no, we just know that. Right. See, only the customer can determine what's valuable. And so once a person gets it, that the way to build a business is pay it forward constantly by listening to the customer, studying the customer, seeing what they like and don't like, how they like it and how they don't. Then you can start adjusting what you do 
and it'll make a world of difference. But it, what we found is just like in politics, good words are cheap and easy. Yeah. It's the actions and the follow-through that separate the winners from the other businesses. With direct relationship, now, that initially suggests a personal one-on-one, but in t- today's um, marketplace with social media and, and all the other ways that you can, can communicate with a customer, can you have a strong direct relationship in a non non face form? Yeah. Uh, not in a non-contact form. That's why I specified oh, that it needs I to mean, be non-personal direct. non-personal contact form. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it, clearly, we can, we can build a brand identity in a marketplace. Yeah. We can build a reputation among a group of people. But we can only cultivate a relationship with people if there's an actual exchange of, of communication. Right. So it needs to be either digital or, or audio or video or in person right. if we're going to actually build a real relationship. As a matter of fact, a quick story. Years ago, my wife and I were watching TV, and I saw an ad for insurance, life insurance and, and uh, property and casualty insurance, and I said, you know, that sounds pretty good. I think we could save some money. Let's call them. And she said, well, Jim, we've been with Dave Scott for 13 years. I said, yeah, I know, but I think we're paying too much. Let's check this out. And she said, well, why don't we call Dave? I said, you know what? We hear from him by mail all the time, but I haven't actually seen Dave in about three years. She said, well, let's just as a courtesy, let's call Dave. And I said, well, you're right. That's the courteous thing to do. So I called Dave and I said, hey, Dave. You know, we're thinking about making a change to this and this. And he said, you know, you're right, Jim. He said, I apologize for not coming over more often, but um, it is time to review your portfolio. So let me drop by. Well, the minute he walked in the front door, I remembered how much I liked the guy. Yeah. I'd forgotten. And his warmth filled the room, and we sat at the table, and we laughed, and we talked. And the net result was when he left, I was spending more money money, on insurance than when he came in. But we had changed the coverage and eliminated some old coverage that was out of date, added some new coverage that I hadn't thought about. And I was happy with the fact that we had increased our outlay because what we were getting was worth it. And I had reconnected with Dave. And Dave and I both looked at each other that day and said, you know what? Every one of us needs to intentionally be face-to-face or phone-to-phone with our client every so often. Otherwise, they forget how good that relationship could be. Yeah, that's true. Uh, there, there's a great, great story about a guy in Australia, which is where I'm originally from, <laughs> and um, about a fellow who sold life insurance. And, you know, I, I've had life insurance for, I don't know, 40 years, and I've never ever hear from the life insurance agent ever well right you know. and um, this guy in australia became the biggest life insurance salesman in the country he was also the biggest buyer of birthday cakes in the country wow because i every, think those two are related <laughs> every year on his client's birthday they got a birthday cake so people came to like it talk about it and rely on it. So I won't go out and buy a birthday cake because whatever his name is is going to send me one. And um, he sort of locked people in and built that relationship, but it's, it's interesting. You know what, Bob? I got 200 
200 birthday wishes this past September. And I was amazed at how many people I know. You know, I know yeah. thousands of people like you do. And, and I mean, I really know that many people. I haven't just met that many people. Yeah. And out of the thousands of people, I, I got 200, which is a lot, sure. of birthday wishes. But nobody, and I mean nobody in my entire life other than my mother or wife, has ever given me a birthday cake. Yeah. Yeah. No, no wonder the guy in Australia was doing so well. It's a great story. You yeah. and I actually have a fair bit in common because um, back in the 50s, mm-hmm. I started off um, paying for my education as a rock and roll singer. And, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> I was on I was on television in Australia for about five years and had a couple of records and one of them did really well and I believe you were a rock and roll singer that's something I didn't know about you tell me about that yeah as a matter of fact when my wife and I got married in 1970 back at the beginning of recorded time uh, I was playing and singing in clubs in my hometown of Little Rock Arkansas Little Rock Arkansas and, yeah and fast forward 40 years or, or more and. What I'm doing today, in addition to my speaking and consulting, is I'm playing rock and roll in clubs and at big events. Fantastic. My, my wife I and it. I just did a 45-minute show at an arts festival three weeks ago. Fantastic. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to get together on stage sometime. Yeah. Well, th- I think that I often say that um, that period of my life when I was in the rock and roll industry did a, did a lot of things for me. First of all, I got a lot of contacts, met a hell of a lot of people that you never would have met, and it yeah. gives you a confidence it, and a, sort of that. Absolutely. And that makes a hell of a difference later on, whether you're on stage or whether you walk into a meeting and you look like you own it, you're going to own it. And, yeah. Uh, I think a lot of that. Well, you comes get the from, feeling that if there's a platform in the room with a spotlight on it, you probably belong there. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it becomes kind of like a, a comfortable second home. And so when you are asked to get up and give a comment or introduce a speaker or give a speech even, yeah. you don't have to worry about, oh, am I coming across okay? Am I, you know, do I, should I really do this? Yeah. yeah so I, I would recommend that those listening to us follow our path, grab a guitar. Absolutely. <laughs> it also and teaches start- you... It also teaches you how to read a room. And in a meeting, reading a room is as important as what you say. That's for sure. Um, yeah, you can pick up the energy in a room real fast. Yeah, you yeah. sure can. <laughs> now, for 36 years, you've been motivating audiences almost in every country of the world. And you, I thought I'd spoken at a lot of events. I've got about 1,500 up, but you've got 2,800 events up. That's incredible. True. and. So what have you learned about motivating people and motivation? Well, the, uh, the one thing I've learned that's kind of at the root of all of that is that motivation is very, very simple if you stop to think about it. It's motive with action. Motive, action, contract it, make it one word, and it's motivation. Yeah. People say, well, you know, I have people working for me that aren't motivated. No, you don't. Everyone's motivated. They just have different motives. Some people are motivated to avoid responsibility. Yeah. Some are motivated to find a way to go home early. You know, some are motivated to do sinister negative things. But motivation is a matter of finding the motive 
and then activating it. Right. So how do you motivate how do, how do you motivate your kid to do his homework? Well, first off, the important thing's not your kid's homework. The important thing is your kid develops a love of learning. Yeah. And if you can cultivate a love of learning, show him or her how to get excited about new information and new discoveries, you'll never have to monitor their homework for the rest of their life. Yeah, true. Same That's thing true. for your employees. You know, I'm, I'm an Aussie, and you've been over to Australia lots and lots of times, and yep. China and South America and, and Europe. Mm-hmm. What do you see that's different about successful businesses in other countries and what's the same i find here that i get um emails from all over the planet and i find that pretty much whether you're getting something from moscow you're getting it from sydney you're getting it from little rock arkansas the same companies have similar issues do you find that yeah the, the fundamental principles are the same everywhere the degree of freedom in the society is what restricts or expands it you know, the, the more free a society is, the more entrepreneurial the people will be. And the more restricted it is, the more innovative people will be on a small level. You know, if, if there are guards at every window and, and uh, restrictions in, in every direction you turn, then you'll tend to focus your attention on very small things and, and just get good at those. Like if you were stuck in a prison cell, you'd probably get good at, at something that doesn't require space or tools. Yeah. And if you were out on your own in the open, you would start building shelters and, you know, blazing paths and finding new, you know, growing crops and all kinds of things. Yeah. So the same thing's true in business. If you go to Poland, that's a group of people over there who have not been accustomed to a free society, and only in recent yep. years have they experienced that. And so they're still kind of tentative and, and uncertain, not confident as they go forward. Sure, I agree. And when, when they hear from, from someone from, say, Australia or, or America, boy, they just take to that like a duck to water. Yeah. And you go to a place like China... And you speak, and and you find that when they're listening to you, even though they want to hear your message, they're looking over their shoulder to see if they're going to get in trouble by agreeing with you. Yeah, that's you know, so. Yeah. So the world's a scary place out there, and, and sure. people are just trying to be safe and then have an abundant, fulfilling life. Yeah. And we need to help them find the most appropriate way to do that for the part of the world they've chosen to live in. Well, they haven't chosen to live there. They got stuck there, didn't they? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they pop out of yeah. the womb and there I am. Hello, this is home. Mm-hmm. Um, you've done almost everything that any professional speaker could ever could ever do. Um, you've won every award. You've held every office. So when you started out to become a professional speaker and write books, all you had going for you at that stage was just ambition. How did, yeah. you, did you ever... How did you determine that you could make it, and what gave you that that impetus to go out and do it? Well, I, I grew up, in, as I said earlier, in Little Rock, Arkansas, in the yeah. south, and uh, my dad was a telephone repairman, and mom was a housewife, and we had my invalid grandfather in the front room, and my grandmother taking care of him, and, and me and my baby sister getting what remained of mom's time. And it was a, a, a safe environment, and it was a loving environment, but it was not an environment where we were actually encouraged to grow and, and achieve great things. So I grew up expecting to become a middle manager at the phone company or someplace like that, yeah. retire at 65 and die at whatever statistical age people died at. 
So I never thought I'd make a difference in the world. And then one day, years later, I was 26, and I was newly married, had a new baby at home, and no college degree, and I was working for a government agency, the housing authority, and I was an assistant to a man who wasn't busy. So I was a typical government worker, you know. Yeah. I had eight hours of free time every day. <laughs> and I was sitting there twiddling my thumbs and reading books on urban renewal and listening to the radio in the next room. And one day I heard our colleague, the late Earl Nightingale, uh-huh. on the radio. And Earl Nightingale at that time, 1972, was yeah. on... 900 stations around the world. So I'm sure you were hearing him in Australia. I remember remember him well. Well, he said that day, and I remember it verbatim, if you will spend one hour extra each day studying your chosen field, you'll be a national expert in that field in five years or less. That was the moment my entire life started changing direction. Yeah. I had never ever considered that I was capable of being somebody substantial until that moment. And then I realized an hour extra a day is 1,250 hours over a five-year period. That's more than a college degree in a specialized field. Yes. So then I started thinking, what do I want to be an expert at? And it wasn't urban renewal. (laughs) So I thought about it for a few weeks, and then it occurred to me, I want to do what that guy on the radio is doing, but I had no idea what that meant. Yeah. So I took his word at it, and I became literally fanatical about studying personal development every spare moment I could find. And within a year or so, I was working as a trainer leading training courses someone else had designed and you know, just basically teaching their sure. words. Yeah. And then I got pretty good at that, and then I started developing my own training material and then within five years, I was a full-time professional speaker and author flying around the world giving speeches for thousands of dollars. It's a great gig, isn't it? Absolutely. I it's love it. It's a blessing. Yeah. Businesses have been dealt a body blow over the past few years. It's been it's bloody yeah. tough out there. And yeah. um, we seem to have a new energy now to grow and achieve. What What's going to be the key to success in the... In the future, I mean, the whole business environment has been totally turned on its head. What do we, what yeah. do we need to do to, to get success now? I think we've got to be way more serious than we ever were in the past about truly addressing a need. You know, a lot of, a lot of the things we do address wants, yeah. and those are nice to do, and those are the things that get done when there's abundance. But when there's scarcity... The things that get done are the things that are true needs. So you might say, well, that's, uh, what a, I have no hope then. I own a movie theater. What, I'm not addressing a need. Yes, you are. Absolutely. Even a movie theater addresses a need if you think about what it does for people. What it does is it gives them a way to escape the cares and concerns of the day in a safe environment and to have a truly enjoyable experience for a very low dollar investment. So even a movie theater is actually addressing a need that people have if, if you stop and think about that. So that, that means you would promote it in a more meaningful way if you were aware of the need you're addressing. Sure. I just came from a meeting at the Boys and Girls Clubs here it, where I live in, in uh, Ventura County, California. And we were talking about the strategic planning session that's coming up. I'm going to be the facilitator of that event with their executive team. Right. 
And they said, what should we talk about first? And I said, one word, why? And they said, what do you mean? I said, I mean, the first thing we ought to talk about is why do we exist? What's the purpose of this organization? Sure. Because until that's clear, everything else is secondary. And it doesn't have any direction. Right. And once that's clear, once you know why the customer would, would want to buy from you, why your employees would want to stay with you and put in extra hours if necessary or you know, give more of themselves to the job, once you can figure out the why from their point of view, then you start seeing the answers as to how to be more effective in motivating them, in serving your customers, you know, achieving successes you'd never thought about before. Sure. So we've really got to be serious about that today like we never have in history. Jim, it's been great to speak to you again. Um, you're just up the road from me in, in L.A., well, kind of in L.A., and so um, we will have a bite to eat and perhaps a glass of red or something very shortly. Um, I'm in Singapore at the moment, but I'll give you a call when I get back, and um, I'd love to catch up. Now, if, you're, if you'd like to find out more about Jim, go to his website, it's cathcart.com. That's C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T dot com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show after this short break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Business Show. It's coming to you this week from my hometown of Los Angeles. Now, this is the segment where I answer your emails. And because we get emails from all over the world, each week I try to answer at least one email from outside the United States. This email segment is very popular because... I think the answers to the questions that you ask apply equally to people all over the planet. It doesn't matter what business they're in or what country of the world that you're in. We all have the same problems and the world's getting more and more 
homogeneous. And uh, when I speak to people in the UK or in Moscow or in Sydney or in LA, everybody has the same problem. So this is a, a great opportunity to hear about other people's problems and um, to be able to adapt the answers that they get to your business. My first email today is from John Alexander, who's from New Orleans in Louisiana. And John writes, Dear Bob, I love your program. It's been a great help to me. And it also convinced me to buy your book. Do you have it on a CD so I can listen to it in the car to and from work? Last week, you answered a question about ensuring that you price your products correctly. I was reading in your book about the need to determine the lifetime value of customers. Why is that so important? Okay, let's tackle them one at a time. Thanks for your kind words. And yes, you can get the audio version uh, of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets. It's available on um, a number of places, really, but it's available from um, Amazon. And it's available from iTunes. So if you'd like to get it, it's Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets. And it's an audio book. Now, after spending time with hundreds of startups, you know, I get um, probably about 100 um, business plans a week from various companies all over the world. And... I realized that one of the most common causes of failure in startups is that entrepreneurs are far too optimistic about how easy it will be to acquire customers. I speak to people every day who assume that because they've got a, what they think is a great product and that's reinforced by all of their friends and their family who tells them what a great product it is um, and because they've got a good website, customers are going to come are running. They're going to beat a path that are the door. And I hear that over and over and over again with almost every entrepreneur I speak to. And the reality is that, sure, the first few customers will be easy to get. But after that, it very rapidly becomes harder and harder and much more expensive to attract and win customers. And in fact, in far too many cases, the cost of acquiring the customer is actually much higher than the lifetime value of that customer. The fact that you have to be able to acquire your customers, you know, you've got to be able to acquire your customers for less profit than they'll generate in the lifetime of your relationship with them. Now, that's blatantly obvious. However, the vast majority of entrepreneurs fail to carefully figure out the realistic cost of customer acquisition. It's not until you sit down with the entrepreneur and work through the business plan that the entrepreneur that the entrepreneur with the entrepreneur that they realize that the business model will not work because the cost of acquisition will be greater than the lifetime value of the customer. John, thanks for that. Great question. But make sure that your um, 
cost of acquisition is significantly less than the lifetime value of the customer. We'll send you out a copy of my book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, which is available at all good bookstores and at Amazon. I'm confident that you'll find it full of valuable information that will help your business. My second email today is from Elliot Brahm from Christchurch in New Zealand, who also asked a question following on from last week's show. Dear Bob, I really learn a lot from your show. I listen to it every week on my iPhone on the way to work in the morning here in New Zealand. I actually looked this up and I think it's on, I can't remember what I found out now, but I think it's on at like 8 o'clock in the morning. And uh, listen to it on the iPhone, that's good. You have been a big help to my business. Now you talk about lifetime customer value. How does that relate to how I set my prices? Well, hopefully um, you're listening tonight and you heard um, the answer to the last question, but I'll just elaborate on this a bit further. Um, The cost of acquiring a customer has to be significantly less than the lifetime value of the customer. And in order to determine the cost of acquiring a customer, you've got to take into account the entire cost of your sales and marketing, including the salaries, marketing programs, lead generation costs, all your travel, everything to do with doing business. And divide it by the number of customers that you got during that same period of time. So if you take it over a year, how much did it cost you in the year? For example, if your total marketing spend over the year was, say, $1 million, and in that time you acquired 1,000 customers, then your cost to acquire a customer is $1,000. So to determine the lifetime value of the customer, you want to look at the gross margin associated with this customer. So taking into account all of the costs, including installation or delivery support, operational expenses for the full period of time that the customer stayed with you. So for businesses with one-time fees, really easy. For businesses that have recurring sales, you work it out by taking the monthly revenue over the average period the customer stays with you and then multiplying it out. So because most businesses have a a series of other functions and other costs, general and administrative, as well as product development, there are additional expenses beyond sales and marketing. You've also got to deliver the product, service it, etc. So for a profitable business, you need the cost of acquiring customers to be less than the lifetime customer value by a number of multiples. So in my experience, to break even, that multiple needs to be a minimum of three times and often up to 10 times. So if it costs you $1,000 to acquire a customer, then 
your multiple needs to be maybe 10 times. So if it costs you a thousand, you need to get back 10,000 from that customer over a period of time. So, and you need to take that into account when you're calculating your prices. So the cost of acquiring customers and the lifetime customer value both have a direct influence on your selling prices. Now, it's often difficult to decrease your customer acquisition costs because they are what they are. So you need to change your lifetime customer value. And you can do that considerably through price. But you do need to take those things into account. And when I talk to customers, very, very few of them allow for this. Most of them don't even consider it before they embark on their journey and they ultimately become one of the 97% of businesses that fail. Elliot, we'll send you out a copy of my book, Marketing Magic, which also includes segments by Brian Tracy, John J. Conrad Levinson, and Robert Bly. It's a great book, segments by about 17 of America's top marketers, and I'm confident that you're going to get a lot out of it that will help your business and it's a lot of people's views. My third email tonight comes from Jennifer Abrams of Stockton, California, who writes, I love your program and your accent. Do you still live in Australia? I have a small business and my question is whether you think it is harder for a woman in business today than it is for a man. Now, some of the challenges that I find that I face are you know, not being taken as seriously as men get taken. I find that I get a bit nervous in, in a lot of situations where most men wouldn't. And, and that fear sort of stands in my way. I also have a burning desire to want to please everybody. And I don't know whether that's a female thing or not. Wearing too many hats is another problem that I have which is a problem I think that both men and women have, and also not being able to um, sing my own praises. I find that difficult. I would appreciate your advice. Well, Jennifer, I, I understand those, and I think that most of those apply equally to men. Um, so let's go through them. One by one, I think the first one is, you know, not being taken seriously because you're a woman. Um, I think that's about how you present yourself. I went to Japan with a partner, with my partner at the time, quite a few years ago, and we were addressing a meeting of business people, men, um, all men. Because in Japan, it's pretty much a man's business world, or it was. And after about half an hour in this business meeting where every question was directed to me and and uh, my opinion was sought on everything, um, Janice stood up and said, listen, I'm here too. I know as much as he does. And unless you start talking to me, we are both walking out of here in five minutes and we are not coming back and we will not do business with you. 
And that took them all aback. And from then on, for the rest of the time we were there and we were doing a big tour, um, everybody spoke to Janice. <laughs> all of a sudden, she turned people around. So I think if you command respect, you know, I think too many people expect respect. You know, they think they're entitled to respect. And I'm one of those people who believes that absolutely no one is entitled to respect. You earn respect. And if you don't earn respect, you don't get it. You've got nobody to blame but yourself. Um, so that's the first the first point. The second one was letting fear stand in your way. Um, women may be less prone to take risks. I'm not sure about that. Um I think most people, men or women, have fear of success, fear of failure, fear of being alone, all of those sort of fears. And um, I think they apply to everybody. Wanting to please everyone, I think, appeals uh, applies to everyone. Wearing too many hats is a common disease of entrepreneurs. And not being able to sell yourself, it's always difficult to sell yourself. It's always much easier to have somebody else go out and say how wonderful you are. With my speaking career, I don't try at all to go out and say, hey, look at me, I'm wonderful, which of course I am, but I have my manager do it for me. It's much easier for her to say, you should see this guy, he's fantastic, than it is for me to do it. So I think that's all common. Now, if you're a thank you very, very much, I've got to look up your name again, I forgot. Jennifer, thanks very, very much. I appreciate your email. We will get you off a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, which is, has been a great seller and is available from all good bookstores and Amazon. And if you're a regular listener to the show, thank you very much. Have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. Tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com. Send me an email at bob at bobpritchard.com. Subscribe to my monthly newsletter by going to my website. Send in your questions. Email me. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Google+. Become my friend on LinkedIn. And until the next same time next week, have a fantastic and successful week. Love your Thanksgiving. Let's kick some butt and help an entrepreneur with contacts, funding, or mentoring. This is Bob Pritchard. See you next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.